Hey, good morning. Welcome to church. Uh, welcome to everybody watching online. And uh, my name is Greg. I'm excited to continue on in our series called What We Believe, talking about what we believe as Christians because of what the Word of God says. And uh, we're, we're finally to the end of this series. We just got a few more messages as we talk about the last things, the end times. And just want to give you a heads up that in two weeks, September 10th and 11th, we're going to take a short break. It's actually Grandparents' Day, National Grandparents' Day on that Sunday. And so uh, Pastor Corey Ishida will come and give a message for everybody, but with grandparents in mind. So we want to encourage you to bring the grandparents. Have your kids invite the grandparents to come out. It'll be a really good time uh, to share the word and to uh, worship together. Okay, so that's in two weekends. But today I, I want to talk about an important event in the last days. And I want to start off by saying, you know, I'll never forget that, that night. It was a Friday night. It's about 10.30 at night. It's late into the night. We're getting ready for bed. And Monica just gets up. She goes, I don't care. I'm going. She gets up and she storms out of the house. And she's, she's out of the house. And then after a while, she, she comes back home. She goes straight into the bathroom and I hear this shriek, this noise. And she comes out, she says, Greg, I'm pregnant. We had only been married for four months at the time. And apparently she had gone to CVS to get a pregnancy test. She goes, I'm pregnant. And I go, what? We were not expecting that. You, didn't, you don't look pregnant. We weren't preparing for it. We weren't planning for this. But sure enough... We got it confirmed by the doctor, and though we weren't expecting it, from that day forward, we were expecting. Though we weren't planning for it, from that day forward, we were planning for it and around it, and our lives were dramatically altered because the coming of this baby was our number one priority from that day forward. I remember about, you know, Nine-ish months after that, that time, we, uh, it's about September of 2010, and uh, we were enjoying a nice date night at Disney's California Adventure. They had just come out with the, sh the show called The World of Color, and so we were excited to watch it for the first time along with 16 million other people. So we had to get there early. There are so many people, shoulder to shoulder. You wanted to get a good seat. So we're waiting there, stuffed in this crowd, and then all of a sudden we're waiting, and it starts. Her contractions. <laughs> and she says, Greg... I think he's coming. And I go, yes, right? Because I heard if you give birth in Disneyland, you get a lifetime pass. And I'm like, yes, come, baby, come. She goes, no, get me to Torrance Memorial. I'm like, what? I'm like, High maintenance, right? And so, so I go, fine, let's go. And we go to, uh, to Torrance Memorial all the way back here in the South Bay. And sure enough, on September 10th, 2010, Evan comes into the world. Were we expecting any more in September than we were in January when we found out? No. We were expecting just as much of the coming of this baby in January as we were in September. But in September, we knew that it was imminent. It was any day now. We didn't know the time or the hour, but we could tell. Like, I mean, she looked like it. Like the baby book told us he's no longer the size of a prune. He's a watermelon now, and he's going to want to come out. Like she felt it. She felt the signs were there. It could be any moment now. 
And because of that knowledge, we, we, we lived ready. Our diaper bag was packed. The car seat was in the car. The baby seat was strapped in because we knew that any moment now he could come. And I share that because in the Bible, the Bible writers wrote with great expectation. John, Peter, Paul, they wrote, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. That was 2,000 years ago. Has he come? Not yet. We're still expecting him. But are we expecting any more than they were when they wrote that? No, they were expecting Jesus to come as surely as we're expecting him to come. But today I want to show you from the scriptures why I believe we need to live as if we were in the ninth month. That it could be any day now, any moment now. And so I want to ask that you join me as we pray. Then I want to invite you to open up the scriptures. And then we're going to ask the Lord to help us see with clarity what the word says, all right? So would you bow your heads and let's come before the Lord. Father God, I, I really pray that as we get into your word, Lord, that you would speak the words of your spirit. God, and I, I pray that, God, you would just really help us to, to know with clarity what you intend for us. But, Lord, that, that would give us great hope, great expectation, great anticipation for the coming of our Lord. God, I pray for uh, Pastor Gary and Cheryl who are in the Philippines right now, that you would do the same for your church that's there, Lord, that you would speak to the church uh, through them, that you would encourage them and inspire them and help them as a church in the Philippines to, to grow and to reach more there. And so we pray that for them there. We pray that for us here. We pray that for your church all over the place this morning, that as your word is proclaimed, that your word would be received by every heart listening, Lord. So speak, Lord. Speak to your people. That's what we ask right now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, so you've probably heard preachers preaching about this imminent return of Christ. Maybe you've clicked on a YouTube video or watched a Netflix docuseries about doomsday preppers, people preparing for the great apocalypse. Maybe you've watched movies about the judgment day or you've read scripture about that great day of the Lord. And you hear of all these things that are going to one day take place, and in our mind it's kind of ambiguous. Like we know something's coming, but what is that? Is that one single day where Christ will return on that day and the church will be raptured on that day and judgment will happen on that day and that's the end of the world on that day? Is that one event? Or are we talking about different events? Like we're, we're a little confused as to what everything means. And so what I hope to do today is to bring some clarity, at least from what the scripture says, so that you can know what to expect. So last week, Pastor Gary put up a timeline for you. I want to uh, zoom out from that timeline a little bit and give you a few more events on that timeline to show you what the Bible says about the last days. So we talked about how last week, we, we right now are in the church age. That started when Christ resurrected and he ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit came down and the church began. That's where we are today. We don't know when that will end, but when it does end, we know that that will enter into a seven-year period known as the tribulation. And the tribulation is a time when you know, there's going to be great trial and tribulation on earth because God's going to bring judgment to deal with the devil, to deal with the Antichrist, to deal with evil on the earth. He's going to bring purification. 
And then at the end of those seven years, there's going to be a uh, 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 battle and Satan's going to be captivated. He's going to be locked up. And as Satan is put away, that's when Christ is going to come down to earth. And with Satan away, it's going to be about a thousand years of peace because King Jesus is reigning on earth. That's what we call the thousand-year kingdom. We call it the millennium or the millennial kingdom because King Jesus reigns for a thousand years here on this earth. And then toward the end of the millennium, there's going to be a short battle because Satan, who was held captive, is going to break out. He's going to try to wage war against King Jesus, but it's going to be a very brief battle because King Jesus is greater than he, and they're going to fight, and he's going to ultimately lock up Satan, throw him, and cast him and the Antichrist into the eternal fires of hell forever and ever. He will never come out again, and that's going to usher in the new heaven and the new earth for eternity. So those are some major events in the last days according to the book of Revelation. Now, the question is, at what point does Jesus come again? What point does he return? And I want to show you today that the second coming is actually two separate events, but one coming. There's two events, but one coming. It begins with the first event, the rapture of the church up into heaven. And then after the tribulation, Christ returning back to earth with the church that had been raptured up to, to begin the millennial kingdom. And so we call that the second coming. Again, one coming in two events. All right? So I want to break down those two events for you to make it a little bit more clear, better for you to understand. So if you're taking notes, let's talk about the first part, part one of the second coming. Write this down in your notes. Part one of the second coming is the rapture up to heaven. The rapture of the church up to heaven. So one of the uh, famous stories in, in my family's history is I have an older sister. Her, her name is Jess, and she's a few years older than me. But when Jess was just two years old, my family uh, took a trip to the San Diego Zoo. The San Diego Zoo, and they went to go see the, the koalas in the koala exhibit, those cute and cuddly koalas, right? And they're at the San Diego Zoo. You, you'll know that they have this kind of elevated platform so that you can see at eye level the koalas hanging on to the eucalyptus trees. And so my, my, my dad is taking my, uh, my sister, who was two at the time, his firstborn, his princess, and he's 31 years old, and he just wants to make sure that nothing happens to her. So he's checking the rails to make sure that she can't fit through and slip through and fall in. So he's actually checking it, and he says to his horror, when he looks, he sees that little Jessica is copying daddy. She puts her head through, and she actually falls through the rails, head first, about eight feet into the koala exhibit. Now, I know that koalas are cute and cuddly, but how many of you know that they become vicious, ferocious when their space is invaded and they feel threatened? And so she falls in, so what does my dad do? Well, by instinct, he finds a way. He jumps into the koala exhibit, eight feet, and he gets his daughter. He gets her up, and he says all these good Samaritans had seen what had happened. They had run, and he snatches her up, and then he hands her to them, and then he's able to climb himself back out. He raptured her. He raptured her. That's what the word means. The word rapture isn't in the Bible. It comes from a Latin word that means to, to snatch away or to, or, or to take away. 
especially from impending danger. And so that's what we believe Jesus will do for his bride, the church. He will take her up away. Now, we have to understand that different Christians have different views as to when that rapture actually happens. I want to let you know that there's actually a view called the post-tribulation view that uh, says that Jesus will actually let the church go through a seven-year tribulation. And at the end of the seven-year tribulation, then Jesus will come. He will rapture up his church, meet them in the clouds, and then immediately descend back down to earth with them to start the kingdom. So essentially in the post-tribulation view, they see the second coming as just one single event, the rapture up and the return down. I want to show you why many other Christians, including your pastors here at South Bay Community Church, we believe that the second coming is actually two separate events of the same coming. Let me show you why. Well, first of all, we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and this talks about the rapture. And here's what it says. Here's what Paul writes to the church. In verse 16 through 18, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. That's where we get the word rapture. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So what it's saying is that when that trumpet blows, then the dead in Christ, your, your grandparents, your friends who put their faith in Christ and have since passed, they will go first. They will get a glorified body in an instant. They will meet the Lord in the air. And then when they're all resurrected, then those of us who are alive and in Christ, we then will be glorified. We will meet them in the air. And we believe that just like my dad snatched his daughter from impending danger to keep her safe, we believe that Christ will also do that for his church before the seven-year tribulation. How do we know that? Well, Revelation chapter 3 says this. And Christ is talking to the church in Revelation 3. In verse 10, he says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you. I will protect you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And so Jesus is speaking to the church in Revelation 3 that I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. Now you go to Revelation 4, and that's where we learn of the tribulation that has come upon the earth. For the next 14 chapters or so up to Revelation chapter 18, we learn of what the tribulation on the earth looks like. The great uh, judgment and increased suffering on the earth. And not once do you see the church mentioned in any of those events. Not once do you see the church on earth. Why? Well, we, be we believe it's because he has raptured up his bride to keep her from that hour. And so that day when he comes to snatch away his church, it is going to be a terrific day, a terrific day for those who are in Christ, for we will be saved from the tribulation, but it will be a terrifying day for those who aren't in him. A terrific day for the church, but a terrifying day for those who aren't. Now, my question is, so what signs do we have? What has to happen? 
What needs to come to pass so that we know that the rapture is near? What signs do we have? And the answer is nothing. There are no signs in that no prophecy needs to be fulfilled at this point. No, no promise has to be fulfilled. It could literally take place at any moment. Even as I'm speaking this sentence, he could come to rapture his church. And some people will say, well, what about what Matthew 24 says about wars and rumors of wars and kingdoms rising against nations and, and, and earthquakes and famines? What about those signs? Well, yeah, those things will happen. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 24, but if you listen closely to what he says about them, look what he says in verse 6. Matthew 24, verse 6, he says, when these things happen, see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. In other words, he's saying, yeah, you're going to see these things. It'll alarm you. You're going to think it's the rapture coming, but don't be alarmed. These things must happen. That's not the end. They've been happening since before Jesus. They've been happening since Jesus. They're happening today, but do not be alarmed. And so when it comes to the rapture of the church, as Dr. David Jeremiah says, it is a signless event. There's nothing more that needs to happen. It can happen any day, at any moment. Here's what Paul says to the church as he goes on in 1 Thessalonians 5, talking about the end days. He says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Nothing needs to be written. Just be ready. It could literally take place as I speak. And some of people will say, well, what about the mark of the beast? Right? What, what, what about microchips everyone's talking about and the wrist or the forehead? What, what about one world government and, and, and one world currencies? Like cashless societies, well, aren't those Saul signs? And I, I want to say, well, all those are people's interpretations of the book of Revelation. So if we put this timeline back up, th those signs are signs that are going to happen surely before the return of Christ back down to earth. But if you think that you're being pressured to get the mark of the beast, that, that this vaccine that people are telling you to get, or this microchip that you have to get, or this mark, or whatever you think you're being pressured by, if you think that could be from the mark of the beast, I'm telling you, you have greater concerns at that point. Why? Because that means you're in the tribulation. Those are all things instituted by the Antichrist. That means you missed the bus. The rapture already happened, and now you're, you're dealing with signs in the tribulation that only tell of the return of Christ back to earth. And so if we see things in the world kind of in motion, starting to move toward a one-world government, starting to move toward a cashless society, technology toward microchips. If any of those are legitimately what Revelation talks about in the tribulation, and I, I don't deny that. Maybe things are gearing up for that. But if that's true, then that only tells us and indicates that the tribulation is coming very soon and the return of Christ back to earth is coming very soon following that tribulation. And if that is true and that's the case, what does that also tell us? That the rapture is even nearer. It's kind of like this. Yesterday, we're driving the car. My, my son goes, Dad, 
dude, Costco already has Christmas stuff out. What the heck? I'm like, that's, that's a great illustration, right? When, when you go to the mall, you go shopping, all of a sudden you hear Christmas music playing, and, and the Christmas decorations come out, and Christmas sales going on. What does that tell us? That's right. Thanksgiving is coming. Right? That tells us Thanksgiving is coming. They come out super early trying to prep us for Christmas. And all these decorations and signs symbolize Christmas. They point us to Christmas. But we all know what has to come first. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving always comes first. And then when Thanksgiving happens, then we can get excited about Christmas. And so when we start seeing signs of what happens in the tribulation and what happens before the return of Christ, that only tells us that the rapture is that much nearer. It could happen at any moment. And so I want to say to you, as I said to my wife in the ninth month of her pregnancy, church, any day now, any moment now, let's get ready. So part one of the second coming is the rapture of the church up into heaven. Let me show you now part two, the return of Christ with the church back down to earth. So write this down. Part two of the second coming, the return down to earth. The return down to earth. Have you ever noticed in the Bible when you read through this, you often see God's people and their relationship with God described as a marriage relationship. Like in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is called the wife of God. And then in the New Testament, the church is what? The bride of Christ. Why is the relationship of God and his people always described as a marriage? And I think intuitively we'd say, well, because it's a, it's a love relationship. And I think that's right. That's right. But if we understand ancient Jewish wedding culture... I think it not only shows us the love between the two, but it gives us deep insight into how God relates with us, and it gives us great hope for what's to come. So let me show you what Jewish weddings were like according to the Jewish Talmud. Now, the Talmud is the rabbinic teaching, the commentaries of the Torah. So this is like sacred Jewish writing. And in the Talmud, it says that the Jewish wedding was made up of two major parts. The Kiddushin and the Nisuin. The Kiddushin and the Nisuin. Let me try to explain each to you because this is fascinating. So let's start off with the Kiddushin. If you're taking notes, the Kiddushin is known as the marriage betrothal. It's the marriage betrothal. And it's kind of like the engagement period for us here in the U.S., when a, and a, guy, a guy and a girl, when they get engaged, it's kind of like that. Like they plan and intend to get married, but the betrothal, the kiddushin, is a lot more binding. It was like a, a real contract where the groom would go to the bride's family and make a payment. Like a monetary payment sometimes is in the form of a dowry or is an actual financial transaction. But this was him expressing to the family, I am serious about your daughter. I want her to be my wife. And if she accepts it, and only if she accepts it, then they enter into this covenant. It's a contract. It's a binding covenant between the two. Now, here's the thing. Once that contract is made, the two would separate. See, when I got married to my wife, 
Like the day I said I do, the next day I moved out of my home. I got, I, got, I got away from my parents and I moved into an apartment with Monica. That's how we do it in the West. Most of you probably did it like that as well. But in the ancient Near East, when a groom and a bride got married, the, the son did not leave the father's house. The daughter moved in. The bride moved in. And so what would happen during that betrothal period when they separated for about a year or so, the, the bride would go to her family's home. The groom would go to his father's house. He would spend the year there studying Torah, but he would also spend that time adding on to the father's house. He'd be preparing a room for his new family. And so he's spending that year uh, doing that, preparing a place for her. And for that year, what is the bride doing? Well, she's sanctifying herself. The word kiddushin, the marriage betrothal, actually means sanctify. And so she is spending that year preparing herself for her groom to come when he's ready. And, and so she's, she's setting herself apart. She's remaining faithful. She's striving for purity. And she's preparing her wedding garments for that day he comes. And she doesn't know the day or the hour. She knows about the general time, but she doesn't know the day or the hour. And there's nothing more important on her mind during that time than when her groom comes to consummate the marriage. There's no greater priority. This is the most important thing on my mind right now. And so they spend that year apart. And I love that, that anticipation, that surprise, right? When's he coming? You know, when I propose to my wife, Monica, I think the girlfriend is always, like, anticipating what's going to happen. I'm telling you, I surprised her. And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. No, I literally surprised her. You know why? Because she wasn't even conscious when I proposed. She was sleeping. I'll tell you what happened, right? Like, I didn't want her to know I was coming. So it was like, I planned it. It was, like, way early in the morning on a Sunday morning. It was about 6.30 in the morning, 7 a.m., her, her mom was in on it, so I asked her mom to let me in the house. She lets me in the house. And so I sneak into her room, right? I go to her room. I crack open the door, and sure enough, she's sleeping. And so, like, on all fours, I crawl up to her bed on all fours. I go up to her bed, and I go, I tap her. I go, hey, Monica. Hey, Monica, wake up. Hey, Monica. She's a beast, right? Like, she, 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 she's not waking up. Monica, wake up. And she finally, she, she rolls over. She doesn't have her glasses or her contacts on. And she just sees, she's like dazed, half awake. She just sees this big, blurry blob in front of her. She doesn't know if it's the man of her dreams or a thief in the night. It was actually both. And so I'm there, and, and I, as she's just trying to figure out what's going on, I ask this life-altering question. Say, Monica, will you marry me? And she's like, what? She's like, what's going on? She had no idea, but I got her to say yes. Whether she realizes it or not, whether she remembers it or not, I got her to marry me. But why did I do it like that? Well, partly because I didn't want her to know when I was coming. Because I know how it's like when boyfriend and girlfriend, when they date for a long enough time and it gets serious, like everything he does is suspicious. Like he plans a Saturday at Disneyland and she's thinking, what, why are we going to Disneyland? <laughs> like, w w what are you going to do there, right? Is he going to ask? And then we're driving along on a Sunday afternoon along the cliff. Hey, look at the sunset. Why are we driving along the cliff? 
why, why, why now, right? Everything is on her mind. He bends down and gets on the knee. She's like, oh, is she going to ask? No, he's just tying his shoe, right? Like, like what? I can't do anything, right? Because of the anticipation. She doesn't know the time or the hour, when it's going to happen. She knows the general period. And in the same way as that bride in Jewish culture is waiting for the groom, all she could do is prepare herself to get her garments ready, to remain pure and faithful. And when the time was right for the groom to now come, it meant it was time for the nisuin, the second part of the wedding ceremony. So write this down if you're taking notes. The nisuin was actually the marriage ceremony or the marriage celebration. So she's waiting. It's going to be a complete surprise. And what he does is when he comes, when he finally arrives, he's going to whisk her away. He's going to take his bride, and he's going to take her back to his father's home. Now, people are starting to gather for this wedding, but before going publicly to the big wedding crowd, for seven days, this is so crazy to me, for seven days, he actually takes her privately to the father's home, and they remain, remain hidden for a period of seven days. And during that time, they would consummate the marriage. They would be physically intimate, and they would remain hidden for seven days together in the father's home. Then, after the seven days, he would then take his bride, and they would publicly appear to all the guests who had come to gather for the ceremony. And then they would throw this crazy, wild party, the celebration, and celebrate in the marriage supper. And that was the Jewish wedding between the groom and the bride. Now I want to turn you to the Word of God, and I want to show you the striking parallels between the Jewish bride and groom and church and, his, and Christ and his church. So what do we say? We said that the groom and bride start off by the Kiddushin. He, he, he makes a contract, right? He pays a price. What does the gospel say? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 to 20, he says to the church, you are not your own. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Listen, church, you were paid for. You were purchased with what? With the currency of his blood. The life of Christ on the cross, his blood spilled for you to pay for your life. And we have to accept that. And if we accept his grace, we enter into this covenant, a relationship, a real relationship with Jesus, the lover of your soul. But are we together? Because he's in heaven as far as I know. And here you are on earth. Why are we separated? Why did he leave us? Well, he didn't leave us. Look what he says to the disciples in John chapter 14, verse 2. He says to his disciples, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So just as the groom would go to his father's house to prepare a room, getting ready for this marriage, our, our, our Jesus has gone to prepare a room for you. And then what's the promise? He goes on in the next verse, John 14, verse 3, then goes, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come again. 
and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And so just like the groom would go and whisk away his bride, so Christ will rapture up the church and take you to his father's house. And just like that groom and that bride would go hidden for a period of seven days in union in the father's house, we praise God that we will be hidden with Christ in his father's house in heaven for a period of seven. Seven years as a great tribulation happens on earth. And when that period of seven is over, then we know that just as the groom and the bride return back to the crowd, to the wedding ceremony, that Christ and his church will descend back down to earth. We with Christ to join with the tribulation saints. Because in the tribulation, there will be many who will harden their hearts toward Jesus, and there will be many who were left on earth who will turn their hearts back to Jesus who will give their lives to Christ, and we call those the tribulation saints. And so when the church comes back down to earth with Christ, we'll join with the tribulation saints, and there will be a huge wedding supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Here's what John says in the last parts of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 9, he says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Those are loud sounds of celebration, of praise going on, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Church, this right here is the ultimate promise to come to pass. This is the ultimate prophecy that needs to be fulfilled. This is the greatest news in all of scripture. No exaggeration. Some of you guys are thinking, well, what, what about salvation? What about the cross? What about the empty tomb? Isn't that the greatest thing? What about forgiveness of sins? And I, know, I would ask you, hold on, why do we need the gospel? Why do we need Christ on the cross? Why do we need that grave to be empty? Why do we need forgiveness of sins? For this reality, this reality that we would be with Jesus the lover of our souls, this is what it's all about, that we would be with him in union, celebrating at the marriage supper with him, and then subsequently to reign with him and live with him forever and ever and ever. This is why the gospel is such great news. This is what makes the good news truly good news, that we would be with the lover of our souls. And so we look forward to his coming. And I love that we have this marriage pattern set before us because when we see it, we see and remember what Christ has done, what he is currently doing, and what he will surely come to do. It reminds us that in the past, 
on the cross, a price was paid. And he reminds us that in the present, in his father's house, a place is being prepared. And it gives us hope that in the future, he will come. He will rapture his bride in his arms. And he will return back to earth to dwell with her forever and ever and ever. Amen? That is the hope of his coming. So my closing question is this. I want to challenge everybody listening, everybody watching, whether you're a believer or not. Here's my question. Are you married to the Lamb? Like, are you married to the Lamb? Are you in a committed love relationship with Him? And I want to ask you to sincerely evaluate where you stand with Jesus. No matter who you are, how do you see Jesus and are you married to the Lamb? During that betrothal period when when they were apart and the groom was in his father's house, that bride was apart, but her mind was set on her groom. Her mind was set on his coming. She spent that time sanctifying herself, preparing herself, remaining pure, being faithful, anticipating his coming. There was nothing more important. There's no greater priority than his coming for her. So all she could think about. Do you, do, do you long for his coming? Do you, do, you, do you think about him? Do you love him? And so when I talk about the rapture, please understand that, that I'm not trying to put any future fear in you. The fear of missing out when the rapture happens. The fear of being left behind when he comes again. That's not my intention. My hope for you, church, is that today in the present, that presently you would have a passion for Jesus. That presently you would walk in love with him. That presently you would commune with him, fellowship with him. That presently you would be present with him. That's my heart for you, church. It's not about fear. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to spur you on toward love. It's about enjoying him right now. So I urge you, would you evaluate your relationship with him? Are you married to the Lamb? I've talked to many people in this church family who grew up in a, Christ, uh, in a Catholic home, who went to Catholic church. And many of you guys have shared with me how growing up it, was, it seemed to be all about formalities and tradition. And then some of you I've talked to, you grew up in a Buddhist home. And for some of you Buddhist families, it was uh, nominal or cultural. Didn't do much with it. Then some of you, it was a little bit more serious. You actually went to the temple and you went to the rituals. And then some of you, maybe you grew up in a Christian home. And even then it's very ritualistic. It's very religious. You would go to church every Sunday because that's what you would do as a Christian family. You just go to church that you'd live your life again. And maybe that's you today. Like you come to church as another box to check off. I did that as if somehow coming to church relieves you of your guilt or gives you like a sense of salvation, sense of security. And I want to say to you in love that coming to church and checking off a box does not make you a spirit-filled Christ follower. It doesn't make you a Christian. Please hear that. 
I was uh, going for a surf session. I was at El Porto. It was a local beach here, and I was getting suited up in my wetsuit, getting ready to, to go surf. And then I see the guy next to me, and he's all suited up and ready to go. And uh, I'll be honest, I was checking out his board. That's, that's what we surfers do. We check out each other's board. And I, and I could tell that he was, he was new to the sport because his board was a beginner board. It was a Costco foam board. That's what we all start on. Right, so I'm not judging him. I actually respect that. I really respect anybody who's willing to give surfing a try because it's not an easy sport to, to pick up. So I'm just watching him as I'm changing, and I watch him grab his backpack and his board. He goes down to the sand, and then I watch him as he props his surfboard up into the sand, and I watch him pull out his phone from his backpack. He turns his back to the crashing waves and the sun in the background. He starts snapping photos of himself. And he's throwing shakas, right? And I, I can only imagine him uh, posting this to his social media. And then I watch him put his phone back into his backpack. He gets a surfboard and he comes back to the car. <laughs> and he changes back into his normal clothes. He gets in his car and he goes home. And I couldn't help but to think, what a poser. <laughs> like, that's, that's not a surfer. I just imagine posting that to social media, hashtag surfer, hashtag surf like Kawabunga. And in my mind, I'm like, you're not a surfer. And I don't want to judge. Maybe he is. Maybe he just ran out of time that morning. But I would ask him, are you willing to paddle out? Are you willing to get wet? Are you willing to go in even when the waves are rough, even when the waters are overwhelming? Are you willing to paddle it out? Because if you are, then I would say you're a true surfer. But just showing up to a beach doesn't make you a surfer. And in the same way, I want to say just showing up to church doesn't make you a Christian. And I would ask you sincerely, are you willing to go all in with Jesus? Are you willing to walk it out with him? Even when life is rough, even when the waters are overwhelming, even when cancer comes, even when your loved one ditches you, even when you lose your job, even when the income isn't coming in, are you willing to trust Jesus and walk it out with him? Are you willing to cling to him with everything and give him your heart fully? Because that's, that's relationship. That's what Jesus wants from you. He says in Luke 9, 23, he says, if anyone would come after me, he's talking to his disciples. If anyone would come after him, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Every single day, deny yourself and follow me. Walk with me. And so, church, to walk with him today is to prepare yourself for him tomorrow. To be in love with him in the present is getting yourself ready for his coming in the future. Relationship with him today in the present is our assurance that one day he will rapture you up in his arms. And return back to you to earth to dwell with you forever and ever and ever. I want to ask you, are you married to the Lamb? I hope you are. And I can't wait to the day when we hear together at the great marriage supper, Revelation 19, 
let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Are you married to the Lamb? Would you bow your heads with me? And as you have your heads bowed, I want to invite you right now to accept that payment. Just like the bride had to agree and accept that, that payment that was made for her. The same is true for us. Christ has paid the price already. And he's proposing a, a life forever with you. Forgiveness of your sins. And it's up to you to accept it. And if you do, then a covenant today is made. A contract is made. A covenant of grace. And the promise is he will come again for you. And he will celebrate the marriage with you. And he will enjoy eternity with you and you with him forever and ever. And so if you want to say, yes, I do, I want to invite you right now to, to say it to him. And I, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And this is your way to express to him your agreement to enter into this love relationship. Pray something like this. Father God, today I want to say yes. I want to say I do. I accept the payment that Christ made for me, that he shed his blood so that I would be forgiven and my, my heart would be bought. And so by my choice, I step into this relationship with Jesus and I will wait for him. All the days of my life, help me to strive for purity from the sins of this world, to remain in faithfulness, to keep my eyes fixed on the day when you come again for me. I'll commit myself to you, Lord. And so I thank you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for choosing me. And thank you for giving me the rest of eternity with you. God, we love you. We sing hallelujah. The Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.